collaborators, welcome to the Fudge Zone Film Conspiracy. <laughs> I am Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by Craig Eastman. Ma'am, I need you to come back inside. Come back inside, please. I think you should come back inside. <laughs> As ever, if you understand Craig's reference, why not send us a tweet for a competition? You can win the respect and admiration of your peers. <laughs> Scott, I mean, I've made it relevant tonight. <laughs> Don't spoil it for the kiddies. <laughs> Hi, everyone. So today we are having a compare and contrast session on Manhunter and Red Dragon The two cinematic cracks at Tom Harris's novel title Red Dragon thus far Uh, It is of course the serial killer thriller that introduced us to the charismatic cannibal Hannibal Lecter Perhaps more readily associated with Silence of the Lambs We are taking a look at 1986's Manhunter, directed by Michael Mann And 2002's Red Dragon with Brett Ratner at the helm who captured our imaginations best? Well, there's only one way to find out. <laughs> stop stop now and <laughs> assert, <laughs> assert the conclusion you already know to be true. <laughs> oh, and, of course, spoilers will be all over the place in this episode, yes. so you may want to give this a wide berth if you have not seen them so far. Now, of course, they are both based on the same novel, so there's a few minor differences, I think, in plot, but the overarching Mm. terms are similar enough that I think I can give you the common ground between the two, and we'll deal with any divergencies as they pop up when we talk about the individual films. But uh, the bones of the story run that we have an ex-FBI agent, Will Graham, who is called in by his old boss, Jack Crawford, to assist with tracking down a serial killer, referred to as the Tooth Fairy. While Graham is a brilliant investigator, Able to put himself in the mind of the people he's tracking, he bears the physical and mental scars from the case that prompted his retirement, the capture of Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter. Despite the misgivings of both his wife and himself, he agrees to help to try and save some lives. There's not too many clues that go on, and as a result, Graham is forced to turn to the brilliant, charismatic, dangerous, but so far safely incarcerated Lecter for assistance in building a profile of this uh, Ducito killer. In exchange for small favours, but mainly to give Lecter an opportunity to play mind games with Graham. Graham's also hounded by bottom-feeding tabloid journalist Freddie Lowndes, who will wind up being dragged into investigation to print articles with false profiles in the hope of prompting the killer to make a mistake. Through some detective work, it transpires that the killer is Francis Dollarhide, a monster born of an abusive childhood who believes that he's undergoing a becoming, transforming into the titular Red Dragon. He's obsessed with the William Blake painting The Great Red Dragon and the Woman Clothed in Sun. He's convinced that the murder of the families that he's undertaking is helping him along the path to a transformation. Do you see? (laughs) 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 It looks for a moment like there may be some redemption for Dollar Hyde when he falls in love with a co-worker, Reba McLean, but that's quite short-lived. Things come to a head once Lecter uncovers Graham's home address and smuggles it to Dollarhide, leading to a final confrontation between Graham and Dollarhide, the location of which varies depending on the film, but with a similar outcome. So, I mean, on a strict narrative sense, it's a pretty solid story, enhanced by some accurate, as I understand it, representations of 80s forensic technology Mm. and profiling, understanding, earning it a few points on the technical level. And the overarching archetype of a copper hunting a villain isn't exactly new, but looking at this story retroactively does it few favours. It might not exactly have been groundbreakingly innovative on its release in 1981, but it perhaps now sounds like a far more familiar tune than it did at the time, in particular this trope of a damaged but brilliant detective pursuing something or other. Mm. Might have its roots in Sherlock Holmes, but it has been battered to death by every television police procedural in the last 30 years. So most of the cliches only apply to the story sort of retroactively. Yes. Right, so I think that's that's the the bulk of the story. That's so, pr- uh, pretty much what you need to know plot-wise to cover both films, I suppose. Yes. yes, so perhaps Greg, you might want to give us a bit of a spiel about Michael Mann's Manhunter. Manhunter, or as I will refer to it, the third best film of the 80s. <laughs> um, <laughs> Scott already knows. Scott already knows what I feel is the second best movie in the 80s. <laughs> And we will be talking about that in short order as well in a future podcast. Uh, But yes, Manhunter, I don't think it's going to surprise anyone to know that... Well, we haven't spoken about this prior to this recording, Scott, so I'm going to make the bold assumption that you are at least on board with me in that you would consider Manhunter, the Michael Mann film, to be superior in most ways to Red Dragon, the Brett Ratner film. 
am I displaying Will Graham like levels of ability to put myself <laughs> into your into yes. your mindset? Or or possibly just remember me swearing coming out of Red Dragon, I think. Um Ah, okay. Uh, oh, actually, did we see Red Dragon together? Uh, I think we must have done it. It would be we about the time for it. It's uh, actually on going back to it, there are positives to Red Dragon that I appreciated more this time mm-hmm, around. Mm-hmm. But yeah. To, to spoil the ending, Manhunter is obviously the better film. But yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Market, markedly so in the vast majority of respects. So I know that actually Manhunter, surprisingly, especially for a Michael Mann film of this period, it still kind of divides people. I'm always surprised yeah. to see that there are still people who just really, really don't like it. And it's difficult for me to talk around that without sounding patronising. But I, I put that down usually when I'm speaking to people. I get the feeling that it's difficult for people who are watching it now to see past as what you quite rightly pointed out, Scott, even at the time of the movie's release in 1986? Yes. Yeah, where to an extent, or a great extent, very worn plot elements, uh, there is also... Uh, Michael Mann is a director in TV and film who has never shied away from you know embracing the shall we say, the aesthetic of, mm. of the, you know, embracing the aesthetic zeitgeist of the times in which his films are set. So in a lot of respects, visually, his films his films date. They, they don't remain timeless, but on the other side of that, I feel like also his films are stylish enough in that the style s- suits them. I don't know, I might just be making excuses because I love this film so dearly, but Manhunter aesthetically is very definitely an 80s film. It certainly has a very a much stronger aesthetic than than Red Dragon, but I think that probably puts a lot of people off as well. And in combination with that sort of feeling of it being, you know, oh, okay, yeah, oh, well, right, the troubled detective who puts his mind, it puts himself into the mind of his his quarries to help cash him. Actually, at the time, yeah, yeah, by today's standards, that is a trope. But cinematically, this is. Kind of no, I wouldn't say a groundbreaking movie, but it's if you put yourself in the context of the time of this movie's release, it was original enough, and I feel like that whole MacGuffin of Will Graham being a character who essentially has a skill that no one else has, which is uh, he doesn't empathise with his quarry, but he has this ability which is both a gift and also haunts him at the same time to understand the thinking of his his quarry and put himself in their mind and reimagine the crimes having taken place and from that perspective pursue clues that might otherwise have passed past uh, his colleagues by uh, so in this example the fingerprints that you suggest dusting someone's a corpse's eyeballs for fingerprints which mm. no one else thought of it feels like a kind of flimsy hook to hang something on but i feel like stylistically man delivers more than enough to carry that and William Peterson crucially his performance as Will Graham which I'm sure we'll discuss in some degree is vastly superior to Ed Norton's in my opinion in the latter film William Peterson's performance carries it to I've always thought like a really surprising degree I've never really questioned the nature of William Peterson's portrayal of Will Graham and this almost it's almost a paranormal ability he has, I suppose, and that's that's a, as I say, a very flimsy hook to hang something that's something this serious on. But I feel like between them, they they really do pull it off. And there's a lot to be said about Bill Peterson's portrayal of of Will Graham that I think is really missing from Red Dragon. And maybe maybe I'll bring that up when we talk more about Red Dragon. But for me, this is it's a police procedural which dabbles enough. In almost almost arcane magics, black magic, if you will, <laughs> to make it more interesting than the run of the mill and the characters, all of the key characters. Brian Cox's performance, because a lot of people to this day who won't have seen Manhunter still don't know that Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal Lecter, as far as most people are concerned, right? Yeah. Brian Cox portrayed him first, on film at least, in this movie, and gives a markedly different performance to... Anthony Hopkins, and I wouldn't necessarily say better, but I would say equally as good. And it really leaves me yearning to think, oh God, what if what if Brian Cox had gone on to portray him in the subsequent movies? So there's a fantastic performance from him as Hannibal Lecter, where Hannibal Lecter has a tiny, tiny amount of screen time really in this yeah. film, but he, his presence is all over the movie, right? It, yeah. it, it, it is a Hannibal Lecter film in the sense that the the entire subplot of Hannibal Lecter behind bars having been put there by Will Graham and ostensibly helping Will Graham 
to hunt down this serial killer, but at the same time playing both sides and actually trying to leverage the Tooth Fairy in order to exact revenge upon Will, Will mm. Graham is far bigger of a subplot than you would expect it to be, given the amount of screen time Hannibal Lecter actually has. And there are elements of that that Brian Cox, because we will see, ironically enough, Anthony Hopkins and Red Dragon come back and reenact some of the material that Brian Cox did in this movie, and I don't think he does it as well. No, and I think it's also telling that uh, Cox was a very different take, as you say. It's colder, it's much more restrained, but I think creepier for it. And also, remarkably, I think all of his scenes were shot in three days, Mm -hmm. which is... Some going, given the shadow that he casts over the rest of the film, uh, something that is such a, a relatively slender proportion of the, the actual shooting time uh, affects so much of the rest around it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then the other crucial aspect from a character point of view is obviously Tom Noonan's portrayal of Francis Dollarhide. And Tom, comparing Tom Noonan to Ray Fiennes I, is kind of in, in any role you're having to put them. Surely chalk and cheese. The guys, these these are two actors who have vastly different styles, vastly different physical presences mm. um, on screen. And if you rolled a dice or or picked a um, a role out of a hat and said, who do you think would fill this role better, Ray Fiennes or Tom Noonan? Nine times out of ten, you'd probably put your money on Ray Fiennes. But Tom Noonan as Francis Dollarhide in Manhunter, to me gives just an, such an amazing performance that Rafe Fiennes cannot, cannot even begin to make the role his own in Red Dragon. I've, again, we'll probably talk about that more in a minute. But Tom Noonan as Francis Dollarhide gives this such a deeply unsettling performance, both in terms of his his delivery, his embodiment of Dollarhide, but also his physical presence on screen is uh, he uses his posture, his, his physique, his stance really sets him apart from everyone else and gives you this impression of this almost alien character who, as we gradually become aware of his, his backstory and, and in a much more subtle way than, than Red Dragon manages, he's a really, really interesting character, but it's, it's very difficult to find him sympathetic in any respect, I suppose. Maybe, maybe Ray Fiennes does a better job of, being, of, of making his character a little bit more sympathetic as, as much as you want to empathise with either of these characters. I think as, 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 as Will Graham says in Manhunter, I think it comes as, yes, as, as a child, my heart bleeds for him. Um, but as, but as, <laughs> as an adult, I think someone ought to blow him out of his effing socks. One of, one of, the, one of the great lines. Yeah, Tom Noonan's performance as Francis Dollarhide is just... I want to. I kind of want to put it in a bubble and hold it up and say, "Look, here's one of the great performances of not even just a serial killer, but one of the great antagonist performances of the decade, certainly." Um, mm. And how how you know how quickly people forget what an amazing actor Tom Noonan actually is when he's given good material to work with, because here he's he's sinister, he's he's alien, he he really is a threat. I think it's certainly one of the key differences is that. Michael Mann, like on paper, if you look at the cast of this and Red Dragon, it should be an easy shoe in for Red Dragon. But yeah. Mann has got much better performances out of his characters here. Like, there's only perhaps one film that William Peterson is better in, and that's To Live and Die in LA. Yeah. And believe you and me, we'll be talking about <laughs> To Live and Die in LA at some point. Um, <laughs> if you thought even, I was going to bore you to death about Manhunter. But even, even the rest of the cast, I mean, I have no strong opinions on either Tom Noonan or uh, even Dennis Farina, but you would struggle to find better performances from either man here. And that's yeah. kind of across the board in, in a way that uh, doesn't happen in Red Dragon. And that is probably the the critical juncture in this. He's, he's just, Michael Mann has managed to get the absolute most out of what's been given to him. And I think that really does help a, yeah. a hell of a lot in uh, keeping the story, well, not just entertaining, but also quite captivating. The key thing that I think makes Dollarhide more interesting in this film than in Manhunter is that he he does have an internal struggle as a character. He he is he does try and battle his demons. He he reaches the precipice of redemption in in both movies through his interaction with um, the character of uh, Reba McLean, and you know at the last minute sort of tips back into the character that the Red Dragon wins out, but. Tom Noonan's portrayal is much more nuanced. I feel like Ray Fine's portrayal of that struggle is bordering on not slapstick, but it's it's almost bordering on on comedy in some places. The sort of talking to himself, the very exaggerated conversation, the monologue he's having with himself about his his condition, and and, and talking to this character of the the Red Dragon who he thinks is is steering him, but 
in Tom Noonan's case. It's all about Spiegel, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it really is. That's the be- That is absolutely the best comparison. You're right. Whereas Tom Noonan does it in a much more a much more subtle way that I think is massively more effective because you're in no doubt as to what is going on in his head, but he's much more reserved about it, which feels much more in keeping with the character and the sort of the the repressed nature of the character, which is which for you know reasons of you know his his backstory that repressed nature which has kind of led to him becoming the character he has it feels more in keeping with that than this very extroverted performance from from Ray Fiennes which is not to say that Ray Fiennes isn't good because Ray Fiennes is one of those actors it's probably quite hard for him to be crap in anything but uh, certainly in Red Dragon I don't think he makes uh, as as good a as good a fist of Dollar High's character as Tom Noonan here and I I absolutely love Tom Noonan in this in, in almost every respect I think. Dollar High's a really compelling character, not in a sort of sympathetic way, necessarily. Uh, not in a way that you're kind of rooting for him in any sense. But if serial killer movies are, they're guilty of a a, a number of crimes in, in general, serial killer narratives, and one of those is usually the serial killer's just not that interesting of a character. Um, yeah. And I feel like Francis Dollar Hyde here, in a far more nuanced performance than you might expect, turns out to be a massively more satisfying character uh, for it. Yeah, so I guess it's a tough thing to do in any of these kind of films. When you're limiting yourself to two hours, it's difficult to yeah. have an investigator that is at one point charismatic enough to carry a film and also build the serial killer at the same time. And that's mm. why films like this tend to be entertaining enough. It's a strong enough foundation. But when you actually think about the more interesting villains in sort of serial killer fiction, it would tend to be something from television. Um, something yes. like where you can build an arc for a character, like something like Dexter, where it'll have a, an enemy serial killer going over a course of a whole series. Um, and of course, in that one, your lead character is also a serial killer, so it's a, yeah. a nice double whammy in that one. But That's yeah, it, yeah. doubling down. <laughs> but um, yeah, Manhunter certainly develops that a lot better. There's some other points that, that, at random that come to be. You mentioned earlier about the, the sense of style that uh, this mm. film has, and uh, that's probably the, its defining characteristic. Yeah. The, yeah. There's more style, uh, certainly some more gorgeous cinematography in the first 10 minutes of this film than mm-hmm. most films features in two hours and certainly more than Red Dragon does. Yeah, I think it's some of, it's some of Dante Spinotti's best work and that's saying something. Yeah, I mean, even something as simple as just having someone run down some stairs. There's that fantastic shot of just them running down look like a kind of diagonal um, staircase. It's kind of a, a long shot of that, which is held for just long enough to be actually quite visually arresting without actually being as boring as a shot of someone running down some stairs ought to be. Yes. Part and parcel of the atmosphere that this builds is the soundtrack, which, uh, for my money, a bit of a mixed bag. Certainly early doors, all these synth-heavy parts sound absolutely amazing. They've got this really eerie, unsettling atmosphere. It's like, if Blade Runner had a couple of very bad nightmares, it would be something like the work work you get here. And and that works really, really well, but there's the odd, just baffling choice. I do not understand why that song is there. That kills the mood for me. It's, it's such a pivotal scene. It's, it's because so Michael Mann, he latches onto certain, or in this period certainly, he latched onto certain pieces of like new wave electronic 80s prog pop and <laughs> just was like, yeah, I'm going to have that in my film. And contextually, they're just, it's those more than anything date it in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah, I knew exactly what you were going to say there when you started saying... It is, though. It's, it's uh, the rest of the soundtrack. The original pieces for the soundtrack are just phenomenal, but the stuff which... Actually, I've never bothered to look into it. The songs like the one I've just given you a flawless rendition of there. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming that was a licensed piece. Um, yeah. And a personal choice of man's, and it's like, oh, Michael, you could have done better. Yes, you have done better in the same yes. film. Yes, you <laughs> have. Yes. What were you thinking of, Michael? Come back to us, Michael. Yes, but aesthetically, it's still a, still a bit of a powerhouse. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very distinctive in a way that uh, certainly, if you're familiar with Man's other work of the, the era, you're you're not going to mistake this for anything else. Yes, that a Michael Mann film. So and, it's got a, a very real. And I feel like in the the licensed music stakes, he does kind of get a free pass for the whole the the entire um, denouement of the the movie is edited together to the the uh, extended version of Iron Butterflies in a Gada de Vida. Uh, famously, yeah. <laughs> which is just perhaps like my favourite 10 minutes of, well, one of my favourite 10 minutes of film of all time. I just think that's a, an amazing, an amazing edit. An ama- I, even the planning of it, the planning, the mix and the edit of that whole sequence, I just absolutely love. There's a couple of like, there's a couple of jump cuts there, which the, I think the first time I saw the movie, I thought like, oh, 
if they had to splice the film there, they made a mistake. And then I think probably the second time I watched this movie when I was a bit older, I realised actually, man, this is amazing. When I watched that scene again, I'm like, oh, this is just so good. Um, I ju- it's just like a, a, that whole sequence. I think is a, from a cinema, you know, from a cinematography point of view, from an editing point of view, from a from a musical point of view. That's just a tour de force. I absolutely love it. Indeed, slight difference narrative wise in the ending in this one. Mm. Um, it, I'm not quite sure if that was just done simply to rein the running time in. As opposed, I don't know. Some of it it does it feels slightly abrupt and a bit like cashing in. But um, I'm not. I'd actually bizarrely for a film that I I love as much as Manhunter. I haven't actually read the source material, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure what uh, Harris did in the in the novel. Perhaps I should yeah. rectify that. Yeah, so in the novel is closer to the, what the Red Dragon ending mm. is, where mm. Dollarhide is sort of fakes his own death and they kind of save Reba, and then everyone thinks, oh, it, it, it's all fine. Graham goes back to his family in Florida, and then surprise, surprise, Dollarhide's out again. So you kind of get a fake out ending, and then the the real ending is mm. uh, is going. But I mean, as I say, the, the fight takes place in a different place, but is effectively the same in both films. Yeah, and at least in terms of you know the narrative function, if not the actual shooting of it. So yeah, a strange, what seems to be a minor, a major difference, but is actually relatively minor in terms of anything to do with the emotional impact of it. So yeah, 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 yeah I yeah. shall forgive it for that. Yeah. Um, also puzzlingly, I do not know why they've changed the spelling of Lecter. That is a strange no. one. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Where did that come from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The CKTO. Doctor um, Lector. Doctor <laughs> Lector. Well, see, Hannibal and Cannibal rhymes, so if we get. Uh, <laughs> Doctor Lector. Maybe that's. <laughs> Doctor Hannibal the Cannibal Lector. <laughs> yeah, the the other I think the other big uh, and but we should probably use this to lead into a bit of a discussion on Red Dragon then before we tie up. But the other big difference I think, just to loop back to William Peterson's performance, I almost forgot that I wanted to mention this is that Peterson's performance as Will Graham is I think it's more accomplished and it's much more satisfying than um, Ed Norton gives in Red Dragon in that superficially. It's a far more physical performance. I think the the obviously the issue of Will Graham's character is that he is balanced on the precipice between sort of between sort of almost becoming a serial killer himself, right? He's he's a man who's very much at war with his, his deeper psyche and the experiences he's had utilizing his gift in the pursuit of his career have left him psychologically in a very precarious position. And I feel like Peterson's portrayal of Graham conveys that much more effectively. Much, in fact, I don't even think Ed Norton's does it at all. But William Peterson's performance as Will Graham—you're never in doubt that this is a guy who's always on the edge of something. Violence, violence is always just a moment away. Like right from that early scene where he, he throws Freddie Lowndes onto the bonnet of a car. Like in Red Dragon, Ed Norton just kind of pushes him against the car, whereas in this, like Will Peterson grabs him and flips him up and over onto the bonnet and smashes the windscreen. He's like he's a man absolutely on edge, and it's it's a more just and balanced enough performance, and also physical enough that suggests he's always just a moment away from some sort of reckless violence himself. You always feel like Will Graham in this film is really at a pivotal point, or, or certainly is reaching a pivotal point, and having gone back to work again, like he said, like he said he wouldn't do for that one last job, you always feel like something might actually come of that throughout this movie. But I don't ever, I don't think, having watched Red Dragon again there the other day in preparation, I, I really didn't get that impression from Ed Norton's portrayal at all. It was almost by the by. It was kind of, it was hinted at early on in the movie, and then nothing really was made of that again, which made the character substantially less interesting. But I don't know. I know other others may disagree, but. I don't know, Scott. What do you think, comparison-wise? I mean, Red Dragon. Obviously, there are there are minor plot differences and whatnot, but in terms of that performance, yeah. I mean, I suppose even just widening it out, just because we're not really stated it explicitly, the cast for Red Dragon, as Gary mentioned, should on paper be a lot better. Uh, yeah. you've got uh, not only Anthony Hopkins uh, back as Animal Lecter, but Ed Norton's there. Normally, highly dependable. Certainly around this time when he was appearing in pretty much every second film, but he's still managing mm-hmm. to do a good job in most of them. Yeah, um, Harvey Keitel plays his boss. Uh, Emily Watson's in as Reba McLean, and uh, Freddie Lowndes as Philip Seymour Hoffman this time. And as we mentioned, Ralph Fiennes as Dollarhide. Now that on paper 
ought to blow the cast of Man <laughs> Manhunter away. I, in my opinion, that's some of the some really good actors in there, and certain characters do much better. Of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman's better in the role of Terry Lowndes. Might just get a bit more feel a bit more sleazy because that seems to be always a, a Hoffman certainty. Mm. I do still like Stephen Lang in Manhunter, but he's a bit more of a caricature of a character, I think, than sort of convincingly sleazy. Yeah, and I think overall the supporting characters come away pretty well in Red Dragon. I've no complaints with mm. most of those guys' performances. The problem, I think, is perhaps a wider one with Brett Ratner in that he's not someone who has ever tried to interject and stamp his own mark on any film at all. No. Now, I think this is the problem. I mean, the, the, the short answer of the problem is there should have been a point where he stepped in and told Ed Norton to up his energy and Anthony Hopkins to down his energy. Yeah. He's not done that. I think he's probably been a bit more trusting in however the actors want to play it. Uh, which might have served well in some situations, but here I think it's just it's pushed a little bit to the end of pantomime. Anthony Hopkins overshadows everyone else uh, with his almost pantomime gurning in this. It's noticeably ramped up from uh, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And I think it overshadows anything Ed Norton tries to do, and he just seems a bit, I don't know, dazed throughout this entire film. He just mm-hmm. kind of stumbles around. Uh, I suppose that is... Why I didn't like this in the first instance was I think at that point I had a bit of a, a hate on for Ratner because yeah. I I've always viewed him as a he he's oh he's just a generic talentless hack and like he's a he's, hack he's, yeah he's, I don't think he's talentless in that regard there is a role for the kind of thing he does you know, especially if you look at it from a studio perspective he's someone yeah. you can hand a colossal amount of money some possibly recalcitrant actors and he's, as long as he's got a functioning script and mm. you know, a camera. Yeah. He will he will give you something that is exactly the sum of those parts. To the, to this day, I that. still really, really enjoy the first two Rush Hour movies for what they are. Yeah, and, that, and I think that's just because at that point, Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan showed up and decided they want to play that day. And if, yeah. if they had, I don't think Ratner would have been able to coax anything out of them as he hasn't here, but because mm. they wanted to do it and they had a, a serviceable script, yeah. you get some good films. But there's any number of films where people have showed up and if they're being a bit lazy, Ratner's not picking up on it. He's just yeah. he's just doing his job, getting things done, shooting through the going through the shot list. I'm sure, he's a very efficient director, but it's not actually making great films. There's no style to Brett Ratner's work. Um, yeah. He may he may inadvertently stumble across something, but there's no singular auteur vision uh, throughout no. his work. It, it feels like it's probably a case of the studio saying, "Right, okay, if we get a good enough cast together. All all we really need to do here is have someone who we know is competent and martial in this kind of thing, and we're yeah. already spending X amount on the cast. Well, we may as well splash out on someone who commercially has been a successful director to this up to this point. And so, it, from that, purely from a bean counting point of view, it's like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But mm. as you say, it's difficult. It's you difficult to be excited about a Brett Ratner film. There's not, a, there's not a frame of this that you look at and go, yep, that's a Brett Ratner film. No. Whereas how many stills could you take from Manhunter and probably <laughs> show it to someone who hadn't seen Manhunter before and be like, yeah, that's Michael Mann, isn't it? Yeah, it's just... And I wonder also as well how much of that comes down to you've got some... You, you've got some appreciably big egos. Look at, look at your three leading men, right? Anthony Hopkins, Edward Norton, and Ray Fiennes. Now, each one of those guys has reputations for being occasionally difficult, depending upon which director you talk to, etc. So you can imagine those guys coming in going, no, I've got my own fully formed idea of what this character's doing. Brett Ratner trying to get his two pence worth in and being told, uh, right, okay, yeah, Brett, go put the kettle on, mate. Go and put the kettle on. We know what we're doing, right? I'm not sure whether Brett Ratner as a director would have had the moxie to step in and go, no, actually, this is what I want you to do, guys, so shut up and do as you're told. Um, yeah. I know, I've read reports that he, he can be sort of bullheaded and stuff, but you've got to imagine you've got that guy in the same room as Anthony Hopkins, Ed Norton and Ray Fiennes, and he's probably, he's probably got the quietest voice in the room, right? Yeah. But yeah, the, the, the result of it is that actually this is a film which feels like it needed a stronger hand at the tiller in order to shape it. Brett Ratner doesn't drill down into anything. He only yeah. paints with a really broad brush. Anytime, well, I've only seen the movie twice, so when we saw it, and then again now, and both times, I remember at the time thinking that Ed Norton's portrayal of Will Graham was superficial to the point of, have you forgotten this is Will, have you forgotten this is Will Graham? His... his yeah. His prowess was barely barely alluded to, or certainly I, th- I think maybe in terms of the script, it's it's referenced as often as Manhunter. But Ed Norton's performance doesn't do anything to betray that um, internal struggle that the character has. And well, he seems largely bored by everything that's going on. 
It's, yeah, he's, I mean, he he comes across almost entirely apart from this fact that he's able just to just to pull insight out of his ass. He comes across as though he may be like in his first year of doing this job, right, or his sophomore year as a as a homicide detective or something, and still a bit green rather yeah. than this character who's supposed to have been completely through the mill to the point where he was psychologically broken, yeah. um, <laughs> and has now been asked to come back and do this other job. And his wife is worried about the fact that. This is going to tip you over the edge again, and I'm really worried that something terrible is going to happen to you, and you're going to end up in a loony bin <laughs> because that's the character of Ogrim. There's no sense of this at all. When you talk about Hopkins' portrayal of Hannibal Lecter in this film, if I if I remember correctly, what, what's ironic about it? Because you're absolutely right; it is a bit more caricature. Or say, I don't I don't know if caricature is the word, but there is that feeling of he's comfortable in here and he's playing to a type now. I seem to remember that the whole point of Ratner going all out and the studio going all out to get Anthony Hopkins or was it Hopkins had said that he agreed to come back and do the role because he felt that in Hannibal the character had gotten to a point where actually people were had forgotten what he was supposed to be and he was people were rooting for him as an anti-hero mm-hmm. and people were kind of rooting for his character and and, and backing his character and be like oh I can't wait to see who's brain eats next um, and he <laughs> wanted to take it back to to the almost to the start and remind people because obviously this version of red dragon is chronologically is canon right so this is supposed in fact the end of the movie leads directly into the start of silence of the jonathan demi's silence of the lambs yeah. so ironically enough if that was hopkins stated intention of coming back and doing this movie then actually he's delivered so far wide of the mark of what he intended to do, which was to remind people why Hannibal Lecter was such a scary character in the first place, because I I felt very little threat emanate from him in this. Brian Cox projects Hannibal Lecter out of that cell that he's trapped in for his small amount of time. You can feel him reaching out with his influence and manipulating things outside in the world. Whereas mm-hmm. Anthony Hopkins, and that is that is genuinely terrifying, the fact that this guy has the power to put your family and other people in danger from inside a prison cell with nothing but a phone um, yeah. and, and his own, you know, deceitfulness and cunning could, could end your family's lives. Whereas there wasn't really, I didn't feel that emanate from Hopkins in this at all. And that's one of the reasons why I think, oh, wow. If only we could have seen Cox fill that role in, in subsequent movies. But I another... wonder if he would have done much better in this script because... Not in this script, but then you would have to... Bar- he wouldn't have been on board for this, right? Because he would have essentially yeah. been remaking the same film. I mean, part of the problem with this is that... Uh, largely due to the chronology of it, there's much more Hannibal Lecter in this film, mm. um, which commercially, there is no sensible way around this. You would have no, to do no, it. No, he's, no. he's been effectively the star of two previous films. He, yes. There needs to be more in it, and that's kind of why they actually got the point of filming the uh, struggle between Graham and yeah. Lecter as a, a star of this film, which is only actually referred to by Graham as, as he kind of speaks. And for my money, having Peterson speak it, is actually a much more effective way of telling it because you can mm-hmm. kind of feel how it's kind of deadened him, whereas actually seeing the struggle is a bit less interesting yeah. on a number of levels. They're kind of bound because at this point it's the character of Lecter. So Francis Dollarhide and Will Graham and the, the, the battle between them is the, the main plot line of the movie, but mm-hmm. whose who's face is it on the poster, right? It's Anthony Hopkins. Because yeah. they're selling Hannibal Lecter, they're not selling Will Graham and Francis Dollarhide. Nobody, essentially, the movie market the Rainbow doesn't give a shit about Will Graham and Francis Dollarhide. They probably don't know who they are, so they're selling it off the back of Hannibal Lecter. So you know they've convinced Hopkins to come back. They presumably just like drove a dump truck outside his house and just tipped it up and emptied a load of money onto his porch mm-hmm. to get him to come back. So you kind of yeah, again from a studio point of view, you can imagine the studio like, oh, he needs, we need to make sure he has this amount of screen time because we want our money's worth. And there are a couple of scenes that he's reasonably effective in, um, which aren't in Manhunter. The one where he's in the um, sort of the enclosed yard and he's strapped to the he's strapped yeah. to the um, <laughs> what do you call it the the track. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The swing ball tether. Yeah, he's on a swing ball tether. That's quite an interesting little scene. But um, as I say, there's none of that sense that he's projecting influence out with the bounds of his his cell, really, in this film. Although a lot of the script, and especially that scene where he he phones up and where he finds out um, Will Graham's address in Marathon, is essentially word for word the same the uh, the same script as used in Manhunter. Um, there's there's far less of a sense of threat involved there, which is uh, which is disappointing. So one of the other things that disappointed me was that Emily Watson's performance as Reba McLean I found oddly overcooked, and I don't know if it's just this is going to sound really bizarre, but I feel like Joan Allen 
did a far better job of portraying Reba McLean in Manhunter. The, f- the first thing about the character that defines the character of Reba McLean, of course, and is, is crucial to her relationship with Francis Dollarhide is that the character of Reba McLean is blind and she works in the, the same photo lab where, um, where Francis Dollarhide works. And this will sound really trivial, but Joan Allen's perform- physical performance as a blind person felt far more convincingly restrained and I felt like Emily Watson and again, I'm probably drilling down far too much here, but even just Emily Watson's the wideness of Emily Watson's eyes, I felt like Emily Watson was doing <laughs> was trying far too hard to remind me that her character was supposed to be blind whereas, whereas with Joan Allen it felt far more natural, but I found that more of a detraction in, in Red Dragon and it's a shame because Emily Watson is, a, is an actor who obviously has done amazing, amazing work and you would expect her again, in keeping with the rest of the cast, you would expect her to be outstanding and, and yeah, under-delivers in this movie. Because hers is probably the most physically, or should be the most physically pronounced role in the film, it kind of singles her out. I don't yeah. know if that makes sense. Um, and then Harvey Keitel just feels like, you know, why did you bother getting Harvey Keitel? You could have just got you could have got anybody to fill that role because he doesn't bring any Harvey Keitel to it. But, you know, there are some actors actually returning in the same roles as their characters from previous films, like Anthony Held portrays uh, Dr. Chilton. Frankie Faison returns as Barney Matthews, although he gets, what, two lines or something? <laughs> yeah. um, which I seem to remember as well. Uh, Ted Talley, um, saying that if he'd realised that Faison was coming back to uh, reprise his role as Barney Matthews, he would have given him much more material. <laughs> so there you go. But it's a strangely disappointing film in terms of performances of everyone involved and it's yeah it's very much a film that is telling and not showing like we kind of talk about mm. will graham you know he's he's a brilliant investigator people say but no there's no actual evidence of that and similar yeah. with um apart from people saying what a brilliant investigator he is yeah and it's the same with ray fines that whole monologue about no i of course you you're very strong and physically imposing ray fines and mm-hmm. you look at ray fines and you go well not really yeah, certainly nothing like compared to Tom Noonan's looming presence. Uh, Ray mm. Fiennes does not cut it, and there, there's awkward performance moments in both films. I mean, there's in particular that moment where either Ed Norton or William Peterson is halfway up a tree, going, "You, that's so you, you, you watch them, you son of a bitch, you son of and, a bitch," and both people flub those lines very badly. I suspect they just wanted to get down from the tree, but uh, <laughs> well. While in Peterson's performance, that stands out as one awkward moment. Ed Norton's performance in this is a whole series of awkward moments. Yeah. And it, it just it doesn't work particularly well. I blame his hairstyle. Oh, my days. Yeah, that's the other thing is that I don't feel like... They didn't push the aesthetic enough in Red Dragon because it is supposed to happen. Um, the events are supposed to take place in the same sort of time period as those in Manhunter, right? So it remains chronologically correct as per the text. So it is, it is set during in the 80s but whereas you can accuse man of over cranking things a bit yeah. not that he would know at the time he was over cranking it but because he would double down on because he's a guy with a you know he's he's a very aesthetically driven director just by yeah. virtue of that his films emanate the sense of period much more than perhaps another director would have done in that time yeah, his dials start at 11 yeah <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> they go all the way up to what <laughs> here i feel like actually the 80s aesthetic was downplayed and i didn't have that sense necessarily of it chronologically fitting in with silence of the lambs which is which is odd the one thing that i really appreciate in red dragon though over manhunter and i wish that and it's always bothered me that because it's such a pivotal scene in, con- in the context of the character of Dollarhide, and obviously, again, having not read the source material, I can only assume that in the in the novel, it's it's that important of a plot development point, or not a plot development point, but um, a sort of vignette in, in in informing the character and his his struggle with the Red Dragon persona. Is that Red Dragon has at least got the nuts to include the scene? where Dollarhide goes to, I can't remember the institute where it's housed, but he actually goes and secures uh, a viewing of the original Red Dragon, um, Blake's original Red Dragon print, and then eats it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which on paper is bizarre, but actually in Red Dragon, it's one of the better scenes, I think, actually. And it's always bothered me. Because I didn't know about, having not read the novel, I didn't know about that scene until I'd seen Red Dragon or sort of like the the pre-release... hype for it 
And it's always bothered me since then that I've always wrestled with what was it about that that man decided in a film where your character essentially has psychic powers. You know why is why is a man eating a painting? Yeah, that's too much. Yeah, you know why is that why is that tipping things too far? And it seems like such a pivotal scene for the character that's always bothered me a bit that man left it out of Manhunter. But I'm, I might feel differently about it. the other one of the other amazing scenes. Obviously, um, Manhunter does hand a lot better than Red Dragon. Is the scene where Dollar Hyde um, takes Reba McLean to the um, to the vets. To uh, to fondle a yeah. uh, an anaesthetized tiger, which is a, just a, feels like uh, it kind of catches you, um, comes from a bit out of the left field, and is this really stunning moment of humanity in Manhunter. Yeah, yeah, slightly forgotten about it, and wasn't expecting it when it showed up. Um, and I watched Red Dragon first, but like, oh yeah, yeah that, there's that bit where they fondle a tiger. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> where where he takes you know, and that's at the point at which you th- that's it's the pivotal point in informing the notion that that he might not be beyond redemption. Yeah, and developing his relationship with Reba, he makes this really quite quite a profound gesture of humanity that reminds you that this is still a human yeah. being underneath this this veneer of this terrible what has become a really terrible and terrifying and hugely obviously psychopathically unbalanced <laughs> character. But there is still a glimmer of humanity there, an actual very sort of profound, profoundly caring emotion that he takes. He takes Reba McLean to a to a, a tropical vet, an exotic vet, and she is um, she's allowed to sort of um, to feel her way sensory around this uh, the prone form of an anaesthetized tiger and and feeling its heartbeat and feeling its teeth and. And you can imagine how powerful a gesture that would be for someone to make to to someone in that position. And it kind of, in Manhunter, it really, first time I saw it, it really caught me off guard. And I don't think, I was probably at an age where I wasn't able to parse that properly. And then again, when I watched it for the second time when I was a bit older and I, I really realised just how, how strongly I felt about it as a movie, it becomes becomes maybe the most important scene in the film actually in some regards and again because it catches you completely off guard and you find yourself feeling some sort of um you know you, you whether you like to or not it's hard not to feel a, um some empathy for the character of Dollar Hyde and it really starts to um it, it starts to play with that notion of is he is he really beyond redemption whereas Will Graham obviously has a very definite opinion as to what should happen to him <laughs> and and in Red Dragon this scene it feels almost perfunctory it feels like it feels like the scene where he eats the painting ought to have replaced that in terms yeah. of the internal struggle, because uh, obviously at the point at which he walks out of the museum, he feels he suddenly feels more empowered. And there's uh, you know he's he's eating this painting. He he thinks he's put that persona to bed now. He's he's beaten the red dragon. He's literally consumed the red dragon, and it can't do anything to influence him now. And obviously that doesn't work out too well in the end. <laughs> so I kind of feel like maybe the reason why that the scene with the tiger doesn't work as well in Red Dragon is because Ratner and Andor Tally, who who wrote the script, had the nuts to go ahead and do the thing with the painting. And maybe what maybe that maybe that's what man realised. Maybe he realised one or other of those scenes. I might just have answered my own question. I can imagine man maybe looking at it and thinking, well, one or other of those scenes will be sufficient for a two-hour movie. Might work better in the course of a book that takes eight, nine hours to read. Uh, but what what else? Is there anything else that Red Dragon succeeds at where Manhunter either not necessarily fails, but maybe doesn't dare to tread, Scott? Because it's not, I, for all that it's inferior, to, I think, objectively inferior to Manhunter in most regards, it's still, it's not a terrible film. No, I mean, I, as I say, when I first watched it, I, I, I don't, remember clearly why I didn't like it and yeah. uh, I can only find sort of scant passing references to it in sort of previous material that I've written yeah. and having watched it again, it does seem overly harsh, I enjoyed it, watching yeah. it this time round. It is not as good but it's still actually very competent. Yeah um, Do you know what I think, the only thing I can think of because I sat there after I watched it and I had exactly the same feeling, I thought wow I, I enjoyed this more this time round and it didn't seem I seem to remember when we watched it in the cinema, I seem to remember feeling like this is just so wantonly stupid i don't think that was a fair assessment at the time actually it's it's far more competent than i thought the first time round and i think at this point the only thing i can think of as to why i rejected it so badly at the time was that i think i was in a period where i felt like ed norton could do no wrong mm-hmm. and i can't remember if this came out before or after the 11th hour but i seem to remember that he agreed to make red dragon so that he could get 11th hour funded and ed norton had just been nailing it nailing it nailing it and i was full-on team norton 
at that point. The man could do no wrong. And I think maybe this is the first time I saw saw him in something where I probably felt really, really disappointed at the time, whereas really his only crime here is to be underwhelming. Yeah. And I think maybe that magnified my feelings. I felt like Ed had let me down, man. Um, And then, of course, we, you know, we saw the remake of the... uh, Italian job and uh, <laughs> yeah less said about that the better one area that I might have expected it to be better would be the score but actually the score mm. in Red Dragon is if anything worse it is kind of it's got a kind of old school cinematic properly overbearing uh, vibe oh, to it well, and it's, I, I it's found your it man what's his name isn't it it's your boy Danny Elfman and it's a it's a Danny Elfman score <laughs> but it ain't a Danny Elfman movie yeah <laughs> I found it just it's one of those ones that kind of actually undercuts drama rather than yeah. it. it's it's all just a bit much um, so yeah I don't think there's really any aspects where I could hand on heart say that Red Dragon does it better but I don't think Red Dragon ever does it particularly badly no it's wrong we're, we're talking about Ed Norton's performances here it's still adequate mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and for all Hopkins is gurning it's kind of expected by this point it's it was what you were more or less expecting probably having seen yeah. Hannibal and for all its lack of sort of stylistic flair and stuff I think it's probably it will probably aesthetically it will it will age better than Manhunter has right if you find that stuff if you find very overtly period sort of you know fashion references and stuff off-putting if you find that sort of stuff that actually becomes a bit sort of kitchen hammy and can sort of uh, detract from a film in that way then this is going to be less guilty of that that's the other thing that i forgot to mention scott was that brett ratner went out of his way to get dante spinotti to to return as cinematographer for this which i find really surprising because again I, much in keeping with the cast I don't feel like this has got his stamp on it um, it's, it doesn't I can't think of a scene that approaches anything like the flair or the you know the, the stamp the, of the guy's work that is just written all over Manhunter and I don't know how much how much leeway he was afforded to do his own thing by Brett Ratner or whether because Brett Ratner I suppose can be quite a visually driven director anyway whether or not he had a very definite idea himself and Dante Spinotti didn't have full yeah. reign to do his own thing uh, creatively, or whether mm. it was just you know it's fine, I'll take the paycheck. You're you know you're going you're going to pay me twice what I would normally get at this point, so yeah, I'll I'll do it, and I'm not that bothered. But that was one of the yeah. things that really disappointed about it was that there's visually there's there's none of the sort of um, impactful sort of really resounding imagery that, that that Manhunter sort of threw about with not with abandon but used so effectively. Um, yeah. So I think my takeaway from this was that surprisingly, yeah, Red Dragon, not as pish as I remembered. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's but not it, like it. Yeah, and it's uh, not, it's not going to take Manhunter's place in my heart. Yeah, and I, I watched the, the other films in the series just uh, for a bit of context. Oh, I think, did you? Yeah, Silence of the Lambs still holding up pretty well. Um, yeah. It's, it, it is underneath Manhunter for me, but it's those two, then Red Dragon. Um, uh, Hannibal is just a bit too over the top it's for my liking. It's a now, isn't it, really? Yeah, and if anything, it gets even worse with Hannibal rising and you don't have the you know, at least Anthony Hopkins knows how to overact uh, and uh, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the poor fellow they've got in uh, Hannibal Rising is not up to the task and I think also he, his credibility was somewhat hampered by him looking like a young Chris Morris so I kept expecting him oh, to break into no. some uh, day-to-day shenanigans and, and never I, quite getting there. So I haven't seen Hannibal Rising and on, on the Dude. strength of that short review, yes, I'll avoid yeah, it. Uh, you're quite right, though, Anthony Hopkins. I mean, as as much as he can be a bit of a ham, he's he's almost always a perfectly cooked ham. So when <laughs> when he's required to be... who I always think back to Hannibal, and I think that's what made it work, and you can understand why he became a real anti-hero in that film, because it was yeah. still, a, for what it was, it was still an incredibly well-balanced performance, because it never quite went... It never quite went full turbo, um, <laughs> but who else is going to deliver a line like you know? Try, try peeling off your face and feeding it to the dog. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's the cut back to the poor schlub in the wheelchair saying, "Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, was it Gary Oldman who portrayed? Um... Yes, although why? <laughs> why? <laughs> right, exactly. Could have been anyone. I could have been anyone. <laughs> yeah, in many respects, the less said about Hannibal, the better. But there's still. When did I watch it? Four years ago. Some four or five years ago, I saw it last. Mm. Yeah, I, I probably enjoyed it more than I did. I think I saw it at a midnight screening when it was released. 
And um, yeah, the shared experience of an audience all sort of <laughs> the brain eating scene <laughs> thing was was almost worth it. But yeah, it's definitely more of a pantomime piece, isn't it? I think I think you've got the I think you've got the order of ceremony right there, Scott. I would definitely go Manhunter, uh, then Silence of the Lambs. Uh, although I know I think we might be in the minority there because I do still think Silence of the Lambs is held in higher regard than Manhunter, generally speaking. But for whatever yes. reason, personally, Manhunter just always struck a perfect sort of balance of aesthetic and dramatic chord with me. Yes, well, I did uh, ask the crowds uh, on, well, firstly on, on the Twitter polls to see and, if they had anything on there. And what poll. did the great unwashed and reply? While it is perhaps a self-selecting bunch of film nerds who follow us, <laughs> uh, it is no great surprise that uh, Manhunter did a clean sweep. Um, admittedly, only six people bothered to vote, but yeah, uh, 100% <laughs> for the Manhunter. But Yay. out of the interests, uh, I, I did actually create a Google Plus page right. uh, just for, for the hell of it, because Google Plus, unlike post-Brexit Britain, loves polls. So... Uh, <laughs> So, um, 60 respondents on this one, and wow. uh, actually, Red Dragon edges it by 53 to 47%. What? Uh, which was a surprise to me. Now, I'm, I'm not altogether convinced of the validity of some of the people voting on it, because there was a poll the other day on uh, The Big Lebowski, and uh, essentially it seems like an awful lot of people haven't seen The Big Lebowski, who are calling themselves film fans, and I don't quite understand what that is. I mean, the responses were basically, did you like it? Yes. No. Haven't seen it. Lol. And really... If you're calling yourself a film fan, you're not allowed to say, haven't seen it, lol. You have to go and watch it. This is what you do as a film fan. I would like, can we, can we, can we, can we drill down into that? I've used the term drill down three times tonight. What is going on? I've clearly latched onto that for some reason. Can we drill down into the demographic data there, Scott? I want to know where these people are coming from, who 53% of whom consider Red Dragon superior to Manhunter. Yes, I, I, I do wonder if perhaps some people are voting who haven't actually seen Manhunter. Yes, um, That is wonders. really the only explanation that makes sense to me, but then maybe that's perhaps me not being suitably empathetic with other people, and that's why I'm not Will Graham. How <laughs> <laughs> long may you continue not to be Will Graham, Scott? <laughs> Least of all, you start to profile me. <laughs> um, I think that, prob- that probably wraps it up then. Was there any closing thoughts, Scott? I think that's for a lot. Uh, I think we've said all we need to say about these films. So I guess at that point, we'll just say that if you want to, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Fuds on Film. You can email us at podcast at Fuds on Film. You can hit us up on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Fuds on Film. And we would love to hear from you in any way. At all, I did notice we've actually had a couple, another couple of iTunes reviews. Uh, oh wow! I don't have the the drill back on who they came from, so I will park that until our next podcast on the twentieth to give you some proper shout outs. Uh, if, but if you're listening, thank a preemptive thank you. But we'll, we'll thank you properly by name once we have that data. Yes, so we shall be with you on the 20th with another just a general catch-up of stuff what we have seen lately and that. But until then, um, I shall bid you adieu. I've been Scott Morrison. Goodbye. And I'm sure my good friend Craig Eastman will also bid you goodbye. Yes, I can't think of anything daft to say, so yes, goodbye. <laughs> you have disappointed me for the last time. <laughs> I was good. Well, um, Drew's, Drew's, Drew's finally back with us next episode, right? Possibly. So, possibly. We think so. So this might, this will be my last opportunity for a while to say to you, Scott, it's just you and me now, sport. <laughs> Aha! <laughs> oh, see what I did there. Goodbye. <laughs>